You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Today on The Zeitgeist, we're talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, which took place November 9th, 1989. For an entire generation, the Berlin Wall was the most iconic physical manifestation of the Cold War. And it was simultaneously many things. It was a stage, one of the most dangerous flashpoints on Earth, a ground zero for repeated confrontations, fraught with the potential to spark violent conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, testing the will and political skill of U.S. and West German leaders in the defense of the free and open societies in the West. It was a scar across the urban landscape of Berlin that divided families when it went up on August 13, 1961. It was a microcosm of the division of Germany among the four victorious powers of the Second World War, which lasted for 45 years. And it was a mirror of the standoff in Europe and around the world of the liberal West and the communist East. Today, we talk with one of the leading scholars of the Cold War and post-Cold War era, Professor Mary Sarati of Johns Hopkins University, about how the wall came down, why the history of the Cold War is still with us today, and is more important than some might think. Spoiler alert, it has little to do with its effect on the worldview of a young KGB officer who was working in East Germany when communism collapsed, a man named Vladimir Putin. But before we get there, let's spin the clock back to 1963. About two years after the wall was built, President John F. Kennedy went to Berlin, and he described how Berlin was the epicenter of the cause of freedom. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the proudest post was Kiewitz Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest post is Ich bin ein Berliner. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. The Berlin Wall remained the symbol of the ideological struggle between the West and the communist world. President Reagan zeroed in on it in 1987, not long after Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and began his attempts to reform. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mikhail Gorbachev did not satisfy Reagan's call, but his attempts to preserve the communist system by reforming it unleashed demands across the Eastern Bloc for the freedoms that were denied in particular for East Germans, the freedom to travel. And that led on the night of November 9th, 1989, to a chaotic press conference in East Berlin. Member of the East German Politburo, Gunter Schabowski, was trying to spin a modest liberalization of the travel policy to the international press. Asked when it would take effect, he said, Which roughly translated means, right now, immediately, even though the East German leadership still intended to maintain control of its population and planned to require citizens to obtain permission for travel. But that night, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of East Berliners gathered at border crossings to test this proposition. And the result 
was the peaceful opening of the border, as described live at the Brandenburg Gate that night by NBC's Tom Brokaw. The wall, as we have known it since 1961, a sinister symbol of oppression, the wall has changed dramatically tonight. A diplomatic frenzy followed. That same day, U.S. President George H.W. Bush tried to lock in the travel freedom with a statement from the Oval Office to the press. I welcome the decision by the East German leadership to open the borders to those wishing to emigrate or travel. And West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl broke off an official trip to Poland, which was further along in its historic changes at that point, and flew to West Berlin. He spoke there the next day, November 10th, more or less in the same location where John F. Kennedy had stood 26 years earlier. He did not outline the ambitious policy of German unification that day. It would be another 40 days before Kohl did that. But Helmut Kohl, more than anyone, sensed the potential in this moment and directed these words to the citizens of East Germany. For you non-German speakers, Kohl's words were, You are not alone. We stand by your side. We are and we remain one nation, and we belong together. But you might notice that not everyone in that crowd agreed with Helmut Kohl. Those whistles are the European equivalent of booze. So the path to a unified Germany was anything other than clear in those first days after the wall fell. Let's talk more about how it happened, what it meant then, and what it means now. I'm here with Professor Mary Serrati. She's the Marie Jose and Henry R. Kravis Distinguished Professor of Historical Studies at the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. She's also the author of The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall. Welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I wanted to start by asking where you were when the wall fell. <laughs> That's an interesting story. Uh, let me start by explaining where I was shortly before the wall fell. I okay. was actually doing study abroad in West Berlin in academic year 1988-89. And that was, of course, a fascinating year to be living in West Berlin. And thanks to a student strike at the Freie Universität, the Free University of West Berlin, I had more time than I expected to travel. So I used that to travel as much as I could in Europe and in East Germany and Hungary, places like that, to Prague. And so I unwittingly got to see the final days of the Warsaw Pact, the final days mm -hmm. of the Division of Europe. And I then moved back to the States at the end of the summer of 1989. So I actually had was not in Berlin when the wall came down, which of course was heartbreaking. And so I had to write a book to make up for the fact that I wasn't there. But gradually I came to appreciate the fact that I had lived through the last phase of the Cold War. I realized that I, I, I'm now, you know, because I was relatively young, I'm now one of the few you know, people who still has this memory of the division of Berlin and the division of Germany as being normal. It sounds strange yes. to say that, but when I first got to Berlin, when I first landed in Berlin, I looked at the wall and I thought, this is insane. How can anyone live with this? But once you live there for a while, you just get used to it. It's amazing what you can get used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sensing you probably had a similar experience. Well, not, not quite as, uh, as exciting as that one. Uh, I, I was a college student. So the fall of 1989, I was uh, living in upstate New York. And 
but of course had grown up in in the Cold War and had this uh, you know, image of the Berlin Wall. It it was in some ways the single most iconic representation of the division between East and West. And and so uh, to see the images and uh, to realize that the wall had disappeared as a factor um, in the East-West uh, standoff was really amazing. And it, it also led to this elation that you could sense in this remote campus where uh, professors of history or political science or whatever had this uh, amazement in their eyes. It was a truly remarkable occurrence, even from thousands of miles away. No, it was, it was truly remarkable. And as I said, I realized that I had gotten to know a world that was disappearing. Berlin with the wall around it, East Germany, and so forth. And so I then, as quickly as I could, got myself back to West Berlin. I actually worked as a freelance journalist in Europe for an extended period mm-hmm. to help to understand better what had happened. And there, my memories of the experience of living under the division of Germany were very helpful in, in, in assessing the magnitude of the change. So you heard the overture, but didn't get to see the whole opera. Right? I, I did, but I, in the end, I, I thought, you know, it's useful. It, it's valuable having had that experience of thinking the Cold War division of Europe was normal. That's hard to explain unless you actually live through it. And then, of course, you realize it was anything but normal. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, a great uh, place to go next because, you know, looking at the median age in the United States, median age in the United States is 38 years old. That is born about 1980. So if you imagine people by the age of nine are probably somewhat conscious of certain big issues uh, in the world, that means about half of the American population doesn't really have any living memory of the existence of the Berlin Wall, except as you know, perhaps some sort of an artifact, but not as something that defined um, the, the international environment we lived in. And, um, and we're also at a point now where the wall has been down longer than it was up. I think we passed that mark last year. Sounds right. And, and so the, I guess the question now is how to take the meaning of the Berlin Wall and put it into uh, terms and a context that people now understand. How, 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 do you, how, how difficult or not difficult do you find that in your work? I do find it... Uh, how shall I put this? I have to remember that people don't remember the wall because, of course, for me, seeing the wall was such a, a life-changing event. It's it's hard mm-hmm. to imagine not having seen it. But as a professor, I often deal with undergraduates, and undergraduates now don't even remember 9-11, let alone the Berlin Wall. They obviously were born well after the wall coming down. So it's a it's a when you teach undergraduates, it keeps you honest. It reminds you of the passing of time because the undergraduates are always eighteen to twenty two years old, yep. even as you get older. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm I'm getting used to having to explain the Cold War more and more. That being said, the effects of the Cold War linger strongly, as you know as well. And they certainly linger, linger, for example, in the mind of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, of course, came to maturity in the Cold War system, became a KGB agent, served in East Germany. And these experiences, I believe, shape him until this day. And actually, there's a theoretical basis for what I'm saying. The political scientist Alexander George has written about the concept of an operational code. By that, he means a guiding sense of principles that... Uh, world leaders acquire when they're younger guides their operations, but that they can only implement when they're older and in power. 
So in other words, there's a time lag between the time period where a leader takes in his or her formative ideas, usually his, and the time period in which he can exercise them. So an example might be Ronald Reagan, whose formative experiences were in the 1950s, the heyday of McCarthyism, us versus bad, Manichaean, good, bad, standoff between the West and, right. and the Soviet Union. You can see the same with Vladimir Putin. His formative experiences are in this time period that we're talking about, particularly in 1989, which he witnessed firsthand in East Germany. He saw the crowds taking control of government, of, of party offices and government offices, of, of Stasi offices even, of East German secret police offices, and said, not, not on my watch. And at that time, he defended the KGB office in Dresden against an attack. And if you fast forward then to when there were protests in Moscow at the end of 2011, he also defended his uh, regime against those quote-unquote attacks uh, very, very aggressively. Right. And, and so in, you know, I think that's a compelling case for why we need to understand these events, even if they seem irrelevant uh, to us at uh, 29 years well, removed. They don't seem irrelevant they, to me. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, but, but I think uh, for people without the personal uh, memory of it, but, I, but certainly for if they shape the, the worldview of, of foreign leaders, including Vladimir Putin, then we, we are at a disadvantage if we fail to recognize that Absolutely, and understand yeah. it. And that maybe brings me to a, a, a different aspect of this, and it has to do with the, the time distance uh, from the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's, it's easy, uh, the longer, uh, further we get away from that time, to assume that it, is, it was inevitable that it would happen the way it did because it happened the way it did. And uh, you quite, uh, quite thoroughly in, in the collapse uh, describe the contingent series of events that led to the peaceful fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, which was by no means uh, foreordained, and uh, and so um, you know, I think, do you see that kind of conting- that contingent nature of the fall of the Berlin Wall as something that is in a way empowering? It means that the actions of individuals uh, uh, matter, um, or how do you how do you look at that? Uh, it was a contingent event, absolutely. I, I try to describe in my book, which, as you know, is called the collapse, the accidental opening of the Berlin Wall just how unexpected that kind of gives it away right exactly that uh, spoiler alert the wall comes down (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i i I try to show just how many events had to come together to result in the opening of the wall but i actually find that rather frightening because it suggests that had the sequence of events not unfolded in the particular way that they did that the opening might not have been nonviolent. There were border guards, Stasi agents, who, who didn't feel that they should peacefully open the, the anti-fascist protective wall that mm-hmm. they had sworn to defend. And indeed, Eric Honecker wanted um, a much more uh, forceful response to the uh, protests in October right. of 1989. Right. He, of course, had been removed from office by a coup by the night the wall came down on November 9th. But yes, absolutely, on the, a month earlier on the night of October 9th, 1989. And of course, we're coming up on the 30th anniversaries of all these events. Uh, he had wanted to organize something like a German Tiananmen, German Tiananmen Square, the reference there is, of course, to the June 1989 Chinese Communist Party crackdown on protesters. In which thousands of people, at least, were killed. It, it, it is unclear to this day, but clearly there was, blood, there was bloodshed on a massive scale. And he, Eric Honecker, the leader of East Germany at the time, was a huge admirer of, of the Chinese. Indeed, East Germany was one of the few countries to act, actively praise China in response to its crackdown in Tiananmen Square. 
and I believe East Germany declared a China week in a, to suggest to its population that the East German regime might emulate the fine example of the Chinese Communist Party uh, by carrying out a similar event. So with that in the background, it, I think, makes it all the luckier for the world that the the way the wall opened was, in fact, peaceful. Mm -hmm. And Eric Honecker didn't really have Mikhail Gorbachev on his side, for example. Though. No, that's a big factor. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev wanted peaceful transitions, ideally to to versions of himself, to reformist socialist leaders. He did not, however, want to just give away Germany. That's a bit of a myth. The Soviet Union had, at great cost to itself, something like 20 million deaths, defeated Nazi Germany in World War II, as you well know. And the Soviet Union was one of the four victor powers to, to, whom, to which Germany had surrendered unconditionally, the complete right. list being the Soviet Union, the United States, Britain, and France. So the Soviet Union had, had rock-solid legal authority to be there and still had close to 400,000 troops in East Germany and had the moral legitimacy of having defeated the Nazis on its side. Mm -hmm. And so Mikhail Gorbachev was not interested in just giving any of that yeah. up. Reform was a way of preserving the system, Reform uh, was, not, exactly. not as a way of doing away with it. Exactly. Mikhail Gorbachev did not come to power to end the, the existence of the Soviet Union. That ended up happening, but that wasn't why he came to power. And he also didn't come to power to give away Germany. It ended up happening, but that was not his intent. And so, again, there was this highly contingent sequence of events where you have this revolution from below, and then what I call history from the middle kicking in, uh, a mm -hmm. series of, of mid-level people who were the people on the spot, the border guards who had to make instant decisions. All those decisions broke the right way in the middle of the night for a peaceful opening. Right. And no one told Gorbachev. He woke up the next day, and it was a fait accompli. So it's an interesting mental exercise to think, well, what might have happened if this had happened during business hours Soviet time? Perhaps Gorbachev might not have, have taken a hard-line response, but he was not the only person mm -hmm. in a position of authority. And, and I think one of the things that really comes through in the collapse is also the confusion, um, even within the East German system, because you had people there who were also trying to do the the minimum necessary to to keep protests under control, um, but without really changing right. um, anything. Right. And it's that that leads to this confusion about the the. Um, the loosening of travel restrictions right. um, that then brings these crowds, uh, in some cases of thousands of people, then, right. to Bornholmerstrasse and other places. You know, it might, for the benefit of your listeners, perhaps be useful just to briefly recount or summarize the story. Yeah. Uh, basically, as, as we've been discussing, Mikhail Gorbachev had brought reform to the Soviet sphere. So he had clearly opened a door to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, power sharing, which had already happened in Poland. The Solidarity Movement, of course, is, is to be praised for its brave advocacy of s at least semi-free elections in Poland. So clearly he had introduced the spirit of reform, but as we were saying before, he didn't want to end Soviet control. He didn't want to just turn everything into a copy of the West. He wanted to find some way forward through Glasnost and Perestroika th to improve the economic health of the Soviet Union. The problem is that he let a genie out of a bottle, and once he started to reform a little— Suddenly, everyone wanted to reform a lot. Right? This is a famous saying by Tocqueville that the most dangerous time for a, a dictatorial regime is when it starts to reform a little because people mm -hmm. are then so impatient. They have so many pent-up hopes that they want 
so much to change so much more quickly than the leader is offering. It can become a very dangerous situation. Yeah. And this is very much the case in East Germany. And Eric Honecker, as we've just been discussing, was attempting to crack down on that, but failing because the, the security forces simply wouldn't execute his orders when push came to shove on October 9th in Leipzig, which is where he had hoped to set up Tiananmen Square. And he ends up getting ousted in a coup. He succeeded by Egon Krenz, who is also a hardliner, but wants to try a slightly different approach. Egon Krenz wants to talk a good game. Yeah, He wants to put on a happy face on the regime and, 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 and talk a good game about easing travel restrictions while still maintaining the restrictive fine print that, it ev- that had kept everyone behind the wall. Uh, he wanted people to apply to travel, but they could still be denied for reasons of national security, which is the same the same reason they could have been denied at any point. Right. So uh, he was basically trying to launch a, a PR initiative. The problem is that it went horribly wrong because Gunter Schabowski, the member of the Politburo who actually announces it, makes it sound as if it's genuine. Yes. <laughs> 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 kind of gave the game away. And the problem is that he's he makes it he, he announces this this uh, so this sort of PR initiative live at an international press conference in front of cameras. Now, if you've been a member of the East German Politburo for much of your career, you've had no incentive to develop media skills. And he certainly didn't have them. And so his inept delivery was was at best confusing and at worst, from the point of view of the regime, openly suggestive that the, the wall was down. And of course, the the journalists in the room, particularly the wire reporters, all wanted to break the big story. So the wire reporters, hearing his muddled, unclear announcement, ran out of the room and phoned in the big news, the wall is open. It wasn't, but that was what was being reported. And then you set up kind of a spiral where people heard that news and then just went to the wall because they assumed it was open. And then the crowds get bigger and bigger, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. And that's where it comes down, as I said, to the history from the middle. The border guards and the Stasi officers kept asking what's going on, and they had no instructions. And finally, at Bornholmer Street, the uh, biggest inner city crossing between the two parts of Berlin, a man named Harold Jaeger, who is the senior off- the senior Stasi officer on duty, at some point he said, you know, either we've got to shoot all these people or open up. And fortunately for, for, for global peace, <laughs> he decided to open up. Right. And, and I think it's also, uh, you know, it's a fascinating story because uh, you know, Harold Jaeger was also frustrated by the inability of his superiors to give him right. any any clear uh, instructions, and so feeling abandoned, um, he he at the end at the end of the evening makes the decision uh, right. to open. Uh, I, that I, crossing. I interviewed him twice, and he said that it, for him it was a uh, it was a, a process through the evening of of steadily making decisions independent of his command. So in other words, at first, when when tens and then hundreds of people started showing up, he called his superior officers and said, what am I supposed to do? And they said, nothing, business as usual. Everything's the same as it ever was. And he said, well, I've got hundreds of people here. Now I've got thousands of people here. He told me that he called his officers something like 33 times. And This is before cell phones and universal reachability. Right, exactly. And they simply didn't believe him. And he began to get very, very frustrated. He was a loyal servant of the regime. He had served for uh, 
over 20 years with only minor demerits in his Stasi file. I pulled his Stasi file, and you can see that he was a loyal servant to the regime. He had actually helped protect the wall because he believed it actually decreased the chance of war between the East and the West. So this, this was not a, a dissident. This was not somebody who was rogue. This was a loyal servant to the regime who was still willing in November to put on his uniform and show up for the night shift at a border crossing. Yeah. And so he kept calling in, and he at one point uh, got a strange offer from his superior. And his, his commanding officer said to him, I'm telling you what I know. Be quiet. I'm going to patch you into a call with my commanding officer. You'll see. I'm not, you know, this is this is the, the, it's business as usual. So he said, Harold, no, just be quiet, and I'm going to patch you through. So he gets patched into a call with superior officers who are saying, who is this Harold Yeager? Is he a coward? Does he know what he's talking about? Can he give an accurate situation report? And suddenly the line cut off. And he and said, he's left with the insult. And he's left with the insult. And he said to me, I, that really got my back up. I you know, spent these decades of service, and now they're saying I can't even accurately report on a situation. So that, that helped him start, you know, start to become angry. But then there were two other factors, he said, that really pushed him over the edge. Another factor was that he, on that night, thought he might have cancer. In other words, he'd had symptoms, and he'd had some preliminary tests which suggested he might have cancer. He'd had further tests and was due the next day, November 10th, to go get the final diagnosis. But, and it turned out he didn't. He was obviously still alive decades later, and I could interview him. But on that night, he thought he might be a dead man. He had a sense of his mortality. He had yeah. a sense of his mortality, and that changed his perception and changed the way he was reacting to situations. And then what really pushed him over the edge was what happened when his commanding officer called him back. His commanding officer, after cutting the line off, a little while lapsed, his commanding officer called him back and said, okay, instead of business as usual, I do actually have different instructions for you. The people who are the loudest, the people who are yelling the loudest about getting out, the real troublemakers... Let's take them aside, take their passports, put a stamp over their faces, and let them go. And don't tell them what you've just done is expelled them forever from East Germany. They've just been expelled from the state. And that way, if we just get rid of the worst troublemakers, then maybe it'll quiet down. This turned out to be a spectacularly stupid idea because pretty quickly the crowds figured out the game. If you got loud, you got, you got out. out. Yes. <laughs> and so basically the regime then uh, was kicking, was shooting itself in the foot, right? And so they started letting people through and basically, you know, did not, basically expelling them from East Germany even though they didn't know it. And right. most of the people went off to party in West Berlin, but fairly quickly a young couple turned around and came back and said we just wanted to see if we could do that that was great now we need to get home because our kids are asleep right. and the guard said to them no you, you've just been expelled from east germany forever and of course these parents reacted the way you would expect parents to react who've been told this they and of course, this didn't seem like an empty threat because of course by constructing the wall the <laughs> the regime had separated families yes. from their kids so the the, uh, the the junior officers called Harold Yeager, who was in command, and said, you're going to have to talk to these parents. These parents are losing it. And he went to these parents, and all of those factors together, the insult, the sense of his own mortality, he looked at these parents, and he decided, okay, you can come back in. And he told me that was the start of a slippery slope, right? That one little disobedience led to another. He let more people back in and so forth. Right. And then finally, by the end of the evening, he's opening the border. So I want to go from that human level and then zoom back up uh, to the heights of international relations, because one of the things that I think also shapes the reaction 
of the East German leadership and uh, the policies of the Soviet Union is their close relationship with West Germany and, in the case of the GDR, their dependence on financial support from West Germany. That was really the result of decades of the so-called Ostpolitik. Ostpolitik was more than just that, but that was one of the facets of it. And so how does that relationship with West Germany then factor in to or form a constraint on how the East German regime and indeed the Soviet Union can respond to this situation? Well, East Germany is always in a tricky position because it's, it's half of a nation, right? It's half of a state. And it finds itself in a perpetual state of comparison to the West, and it's always falling short. So there's always a particular tension within the two Germanys that is unique in the, in the Warsaw Pact. And the fact that w East Germans could have a soft landing in West Germany makes the prospect of fleeing more attractive. In other words, East Germans were recognized as, as German citizens, and as you know, given passport, given money, given assistance with housing and so forth. So it, it meant that if they could get to the West, they knew they would have extensive assistance, right. which then made the prospect of emigrating more feasible and more attractive, which then meant more people tried to flee. And in the once the Hungarians basically opened the border to the West, they could flee via Hungary. So it this was is late summer, early late fall, summer 1989. 1989 yeah. yeah, there's a parallel here, of course, to the summer of 1961, when as the as the Iron Curtain was hardening or closing, uh, the um, the ex Berlin became a kind of exception. It became possible to go. It was still possible to go from East Berlin to West Berlin in a way that was becoming decreasingly possible. It was a seam in the border. Iron Curtain, in a way. It was, a, it was a, a little bit of a hole in the Iron Curtain. And, of course, that massive immigration from East to West Berlin was one of the factors that inspired the East Berlin regime, the East German regime, to put up the wall in the first place. Yeah. And then, if since we're in 1961, uh, one of the things that strikes me about this period is, in 1961, the wall goes up. The United States is unable really to do much about it um, because it would risk um, a global conflict potentially. So the United States issues a, uh, a strongly worded uh, note, but with no consequences. That comes as a big shock uh, to the West German leadership, to the governing mayor of Berlin, Willy Brandt, who later becomes foreign minister and chancellor indeed, uh, and also to Konrad Adenauer, the chancellor at the time. That disappointment uh, in the U.S. response and also this sense of, um, you know, the, the world having changed to its, uh, you know, to, the, to its detriment sparks a really creative period in German diplomacy. Um, the, the Ostpolitik, the uh, concluding of agreements and treaties with the Eastern uh, European states and indeed with the Soviet Union. Uh, and all of that is what leads us to this situation in 1989 where all of a sudden Germany's adversaries the GDR and the Soviet Union, are also dependent on West Germany, which gives them a lot of leverage. Um, if we look at today's international system, I think you see, um, it's not a parallel, but you certainly see the international system changing very quickly to the detriment of Germany and other countries, especially that are so dependent on an open international order. And I guess the question then is, what kind of reaction, what kind of creative diplomacy will fill that vacuum? And if it doesn't, where do we, where do we stand? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very big question, jumping from 1961 to the present. I, I think we're seeing a profound moment of transition on, on, on unfurl before our eyes 
certainly we as historians are interested in what what I and others call ordering moments. In other words, these moments of transition between one order and another or one era and another. And we do seem again to be in such a moment. I one of the ways I can describe myself is as a historian of the post-Cold War world, and it's starting to feel as if that era is ending. Mm-hmm. It's not clear what comes next, but it does feel as if the post-Cold War era, and particularly the optimism of the post-Cold War era, is coming to an end, which I regret. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. But I do think that we are now witnessing a transition period, particularly in transatlantic relations. And it's as you said, it's you know moments of uncertainty that pose the greatest challenge mm-hmm. for world leaders. And from my uh, vantage point, you know, sort of observing uh, changes in German foreign policy, certainly you see since 2014, and especially since 2016, uh, increasingly direct statements from German leaders, Chancellor Merkel um, and now Foreign Minister Maas, about the necessity for Germany to take greater responsibility, in other words, to be more active to shape the international environment um, that is in some ways deteriorating. Um, and and I guess we're still waiting to see what the, what the concrete manifestations of that kind of a policy uh, are going to be. If, if I could switch uh, for, for a moment to you know, the modern day context, uh, you know, one, of the, one of the developments in the post-unification period, as you say, that period of euphoria and optimism that has turned out a little differently maybe than everyone expected, is the rise of support for extremism and extreme uh, parties, it, not only in Germany, but you see it there, you see it across Central and Eastern Europe. And you see it in Western Europe as well. So it's not only a, a phenomenon there. But um, you know, that raises the question, the degree to which uh, that was not inevitable, but um, uh, perhaps more likely because the Eastern Bloc didn't deal with the Nazi period in the way that West Germany did. This is a, a common refrain. I, I wonder how you see that. Mm. I don't want to be too simplistic. You don't want to draw a straight line from then until now, but it's it's clear that the uh, how shall I put it? The East German regime actively fostered a sense of division and hostility toward the West. Now that's understandable, particularly because East Germany, as I was saying before, was was half of a divided state, and so had to assert its autonomy and legitimacy via some means. And so one of those means was to say, West Germany is the state that is the true heir to fascism and Nazism. Yes. Right. We are the anti-fascists, and the formal name for the wall is the anti-fascist protective wall. So the regime actively propagated this sense of aggressively defining itself in opposition to the West and in opposition to others. That practice, unfortunately, seems to still linger in the minds of people who still live in those regions, not only in those regions, obviously the the AfD, the the right of center party, obviously has great support in former West Germany as well, particularly, as we just saw in the Bavarian elections, is doing well there. So I don't by any means mean to say it's exclusively an East German phenomenon, but uh, some of the- Certainly more pronounced there. Right, some of these Peggy Da marches and some of the more aggressive marches that we've seen have been in East Germany. And in some ways, they've been tragic echoes of marches that used to happen in Leipzig and Dresden, calling for greater freedom and openness. 
Yeah. You've seen people actually use the old tradition of the Monday marches uh, now for a very different purpose. And even the slogan, Wir sind das Volk. And even the slogan, Wir sind das Volk, We are the people, uh, which is, as I said, a very tragic echo of what were very heroic marches at the end of the Cold War period. So certainly that sense of aggressively defining oneself in opposition to other entities clearly survives and thrives. And I think that in the West, we uh, perhaps underestimated the persistence of that mind frame. Mm -hmm. And if I can link this back perhaps to uh, where, where we uh, started, it also emphasizes the need for uh, engagement, both at, a, at an official and at the state level, um, as well as at the individual level uh, to, to address uh, any challenges to the constitutional order, um, as well as to the, you know, the international environment uh, that, uh, that we, we all need to grapple with. So uh, in that sense, uh, maybe that optimism isn't, uh, isn't totally extinguished. I would like to hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a terrific conversation. I want to thank you, Mary Sarati, for, for joining us uh, in episode two of The Zeitgeist, the AICGS podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org slash podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Wiederhören.